This show contains strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, listeners. If you're just joining us, you may want to go back to Chapter 1, Into the Mine, to get the full story of Hemingway's Picasso. When Steve Coe went to prison and met Joe Pegg in 1982, it would change the course of his life. They were both arrested for drug smuggling, though Pegg's charges were a bit steeper than Steve's. For context, in 1981, Joe Pegg was one of the 155 people indicted in Operation Grouper, a two-year undercover investigation of the multi-million dollar smuggling enterprise that shipped marijuana from Colombia to the U.S. Federal agents seized 1.2 million pounds of marijuana, 3 million tablets of quaaludes, 30 boats and ships, two airplanes, and approximately $1 million in cash. As soon as he got word there was a warrant for his arrest, Peg hightailed it from Fort Lauderdale to Norman's Key, a tiny island in the Bahamas. Norman's Key was one of the most important pieces of land to the Medellin cartel. It had been taken over by the murderous German-Colombian drug kingpin and Pablo Escobar's enforcer, Carlos Later. Let me break it down. Escobar was in business with Later, Later was in business with Joe Pegg, and Joe Pegg was in business with Steve Coe. Steve didn't mention Later in his tapes. He drops the name of the more famous leader of the Medellin cartel, Pablo Escobar. And that's pretty classic Steve Coe storytelling. Later isn't a celebrity like Escobar, but the real truth is that without Later, Escobar would never have become a wildly famous drug kingpin. So, why was Carlos Later so important? He not only co-founded the Medellin cartel with Escobar, but he also revolutionized the business that the Medellin cartel would become known for. A billion-dollar enterprise that flooded the streets of America with a deluge of cocaine. In other words, we have Carlos later to thank or blame for getting America all coked up. I'm Leah Carroll, and from something else, this is Hemingway's Picasso. Carlos Later was one of the most interesting and important figures in international uh, drug trafficking. Ron Chepsik has covered the rise and fall of cocaine kingpins for decades. And Carlos Later caught his interest early on. He helped revolutionize the way drugs are transported from, uh, from Colombia uh, to the United States and um, helped create the cocaine drug epidemic that inflicted the United States from uh, the late 1970s. Ron published a biography called Crazy Charlie. Its title comes from Later's nickname, and the book itself is about his rise and fall and all the crazy shit in between. Later was born in 1949 in Colombia to a German father and Colombian mother. 
When his parents divorced when he was 15 years old, he moved with his mother to the United States. Moving to the States was supposed to be a big opportunity for Carlos, but he quickly became disillusioned with American life. Later became a small-time hustler, and he wound up in prison in Danbury, Connecticut. That's where he met George Jung, a man who would eventually become Later's mentor and partner. Jung was an innovator. He'd created a new way to smuggle marijuana into the U.S. by using small private planes to transport the product. In the 1970s, marijuana was the number one drug imported to the United States. And a lot of that product was coming in from Colombia. I remember going to, uh, to Colombia in um, 1988 and seeing marijuana fields just out in the open. Later, had an innovative thought. And um, he thought, he said, well, if that could be done for marijuana, why couldn't it be done for cocaine? But later was ahead of his time. He really saw the importance of cocaine and how important it was becoming as a product. In the 70s, coke was a glamorous party drug. At that time, cocaine was called the champagne of drugs. It was very expensive and it was difficult to get. The reason it was difficult was because there was really only one way to get coke into the U.S. Colombian drug traffickers would hire drug mules, people who literally hid drugs on or in their bodies, and then send them to the U.S. on commercial flights. Later's idea to use private planes would cut this middleman out and allow the cartels to ship way more product. And you're talking like a kilo at a time. Using planes, you can move literally tons of the stuff. That would augment demand, which would mean that more cocaine would be desired, which meant that it would increase production and uh, make the drug traffickers richer. Luckily, Later had connections in Colombia. Once Later and Jung were released and paroled in 1976, he was able to pitch the idea to an up-and-coming smuggler named Pablo Escobar. Escobar was looking to find ways to eliminate competition and centralize his drug trade. Together, he and Later consolidated their power and formed the Medellin cartel. Escobar was interested in forming a cartel. You know, rather than fight with each other, you know, for the drug trade, they could cooperate. And that's what a cartel was. Escobar liked Later and Jung's idea. So they went to work. They got control of these small charter flights. They planned for them to go directly from Colombia to the southern shores of the U.S. In theory, the charter flights were perfect because they evaded radar detection. But they also had tiny fuel tanks. Later realized he needed to find an intermediary location where the planes could refuel. At first, they used Nassau in the Bahamas as a stopover, bribing officials to look the other way. But then, Later made a life-changing discovery. A little island in the Bahamas, just 210 miles away from the United States. Norman's Key. And uh, he decided that, that he was going to buy this island. And that was going to that was going to be the drop-off point. It was almost like halfway between Colombia and the United States. And they would refuel and move on to the United States. And that way, he'll be able to move large quantities of drugs. Later had big plans for Norman's Key. He invested the profits he'd already made from his partnership with Jung and Escobar into the island 
an estimated $4.5 million. He paid, uh, they paid the, the land to, to make the runways, and he bought off Bahamian officials, you know, said he could do his thing. In 1978, Leader began buying up property and harassing and threatening the island's residents. He paid off the government to turn a blind eye to his activities. And at one point, a yacht was found drifting off the coast with the corpse of one of its owners aboard. Later was never definitively connected to this death, but nothing was off limits for crazy Charlie. And before you knew it, he had the island to himself. Norman's key was everything later needed. Planes carrying piles of cocaine from Columbia landed on the small strip to refuel and headed off to the States without a hitch. They'd fly the planes right into the United States. In those days, there wasn't that much security. You could actually fly single-engine planes right into the United States, and they would fly into Georgia, Florida, you know, rural, uh, very isolated places. Largely because of Later's vision, the Medellin cartel became responsible for 85% of the cocaine coming into the United States. That cocaine found its way to the shores of South Florida. Drug money poured into Miami and funded downtown skyscrapers and mansions on the beach. Later was on top of the world. Norman's Key became a notorious playground for drugs, sex, and murder. He would throw debaucherous parties that lasted for days. And it's a reputation the island would have for decades. In fact, that reputation resurfaced in 2017 with the Fire Festival. What was supposed to be a luxury music festival became a notorious hellscape of poor planning, chaos, and inedible cheese sandwiches. Organizers Billy McFarland and Ja Rule originally brokered a deal to hold the event on Norman's Key, which had all the infrastructure necessary to pull it off. Island residents just had one condition. Don't mention Pablo Escobar. Of course, that's exactly what they did. And they were kicked out of paradise. The rest is history. It's funny. That kind of celebration of wealth and excess was exactly what Carlos later would have wanted for Norman's Key. But for those 20-somethings, the celebration was doomed. Just like it was for later himself, 30 years earlier. More on that after the break. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Later was at the top of his game. He had access to the best parties and the best coke. 
He wound up getting hooked on his own supply, and his behavior became even more erratic. He couldn't repress his narcissism. Later, whose German father was an admirer of Adolf Hitler, was also enamored by the murderous cruelties of Nazi fascist belief. He began espousing neo-Nazi beliefs with delusional fervor. There's a famous uh, interview with him in uh, the Amazon jungle where he's sitting in a chair and he's ranting about, you know, uh, how six million Jews was a, was a fake, you know, the Holocaust was a fake, Hitler was right and all that sort of stuff. In January 1981, those delusions took the form of later founding the National Latin Movement, a short-lived Colombian political party with neo-Nazi and fascist populist ideology. He literally became an embarrassment to the Median cartel. Soon, everyone turned on him, starting with the Colombian government. In 1984, Colombian President Belisario Betancourt who had previously opposed extraditing any Colombian drug lords to the United States, announced that he was reversing that policy. Later, was at the top of that crackdown list. He fled extradition, but while hiding from authorities in the Colombian jungle, he became terribly ill. Escobar sent a helicopter for later and brought him back to Medellin, where he was nursed back to health. Uh, He ended up as a bodyguard for Escobar. And I think Escobar just did it to him sort of as a favor because of his past association with him in the the Medellin cartel. But he wasn't doing well at all. Later's behavior was beginning to wear on Escobar as well. So when Later was finally arrested on February 4th, 1987, people assumed Escobar had something to do with it. Escobar uh, was the one that uh, uh, told the authorities where, where he was. Uh, hiding, and uh, the authorities arrested him. That hasn't been proven. But regardless, later was arrested and extradited to the U.S. And uh, he was the first big drug trafficker extradited to the United States, and he was the first big drug trafficker that the U.S. wanted. Once he was in custody, Crazy Charlie, the guy who believed he could get away with anything, found out he couldn't. He had all kinds of witnesses against him. Some of his pilots testified against him. People on the island that that he threatened and and got off the island testified against him. The uh, U.S. government was really concerned that there there might be an effort by the Medellin cartel to get later out of jail. And I think that they're just happy to see him in jail. I mean, because he was such an embarrassment to them. And you know, that's the thing about gangsterism. You get caught. You know what I mean? For a while, everything is great. You have the woman, you have the money, you have the great lifestyle. You know, things are going to last forever. It's only a matter of time. It's all a matter of time. It was certainly true for all the gangsters in our story. Escobar was killed. Joe Pegg was imprisoned. Even Steve Coe died quietly. Almost nothing left to his name. Later had a much longer fall than Steve or Peg. He was sentenced to life plus 135 years. But then, in June 2020, as the pandemic was in full force, Later was released after serving 33 years. At 70 years old, he's been diagnosed with prostate cancer, the same cancer that killed Steve Coe. 
he was deported to his father's home country, Germany. With no friends or family there, a charity has agreed to pay for his cancer treatment. This may seem like a compassionate release. This murderous narco-terrorist got a much shorter sentence than expected. But Carlos Slater was a power-tripping gangster who believed in his bones that he had changed the world. Dying, quietly, alone, a charity case. Well, it's just about the worst thing that could happen to him. Ron Chepsik is an award-winning writer, filmmaker, and the host of Crime Beat Radio Show. He's written over 40 books about gangsters and kingpins and plans to adapt Crazy Charlie into a feature film. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was reported and produced by India Witkin. This show is hosted and reported by me, Leah Carroll. Senior producer is Pallavi Kotamasu. Associate producer is India Witkin. Editor is Lizzie Jacobs. Original music by Emma Palm. Audio engineer for this episode is Gulliver Lawrence Tickle. Fact checker is Erica Gaida. Development producer is Grant Irving. In association with Vespucci Group, based on a story by Joe Flood, executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, Steve Ackerman, Johnny Galvin, Daniel Turkin, and Nick 